Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. I think you all know Kerry. Uh, he's had a 50-year, despite his youthful good looks, he's had a 50-year career as a journalist, 33 of them with the ABC, long-standing presenter of First Late Line, then the 7.30 report, now Four Corners. He's been honoured in a whole range of ways, including six uh, Wakeley Awards. He's perhaps the only other person in the room to have spent some of his formative years in Monto. And I'll offer a prize from the University House Cellar for anybody who know, anybody else who knows where Monto is. <laughs> That's cheating. Uh, and I'm also delighted to have spent some of my formative years in Monto and to have been an altar boy. Uh, as Kerry was, though, in a different place at a different time. Uh, joining Kerry in conversation this evening to uh, take us through the Keating years is Lenore Taylor. Uh, Lenore's the Guardian Australia's political editor, the Free Press, following an illustrious career in what we now call the Fairfax Press. Uh, she's won herself numerous awards for her journalism, uh, two Wakeley Awards, Paul Lynham Awards for excellence in her work and she's covered federal politics for not quite as long as Kerry but a significant period. Uh, she's worked uh, abroad, she co-authored the book Shite Storm is how I'd pronounce it in this place. <laughs> <laughs> My mum would have liked that. <laughs> she's a great person to uh, lead us in conversation with Kerry O'Brien. Please welcome Lenore and Kerry. So, given that this is a discussion about Paul Keating, I reckon the only place to start is the big picture. As we just heard, he says anyone who's any good never writes about themselves. That's his rationale for not writing his autobiography. You've talked about how you think it would ta have taken him ages to perfect it and finish it and how sort of visceral it was for him to go back over all these memories. But it's also really clear watching your interviews with him and reading this book that he's very preoccupied with his place in history, with everything being recorded properly and accurately. And you talk about the annotated newspapers that he has and mm. all the records. So it still doesn't really ring true to me. I don't really understand why he didn't try to write an autobiography. I think uh, it pays to take a certain amount at face value uh, I think there is some truth that um, uh, the kind of guy he is that he probably would have worried himself to, to abstraction getting it right and he would have been still polishing it on the day he died. <laughs> uh, and that is really very much what he's like mm -hmm. on a lot of things. Um, 
I do think also uh, that he genuinely um, had moved on until um, I, I think he'd even moved on beyond Bob Hawke's autobiography to the extent that Hawke used that autobiography um, to attack those things about Keating that he didn't like. Um, but then when Blanche Del Puget brought out a revised version of her biography of Hawke, the first edition of which she'd written, I think Hawke had just come to Canberra uh, as an opposition front bencher between 80 and 83. I think I've got that right. And um, uh, she came out with the revised edition, taking in, of course, Hawke's time as Prime Minister. Mm. And uh, Keating was clearly angered by all of that. He wrote an open letter yeah. in the Herald at the time. And I frankly think that uh, if that, if Blanche had not brought that out, uh, our television series would never have happened and therefore this book. Yeah. So I think that was a big, a big motivator for him. Now, how much of that was just anger at, at the different perspective he had on it all to Bob's, and we all know those two perspectives. Um, uh, whether also uh, over time he had developed the, the kind of um, determination to make sure that his place in history was cemented. I'm not sure, but I do think that... That was the catalyst. I think that that was the catalyst. So given that you spent all this time with him through the the television series and the book, hours and hours. At the end of it, did you feel like you really understood him? Uh, uh, up to a point, a little more than I had, but um, Lenore, I don't think any person in this room really understands themselves, let alone anyone else. But I mean, he's more complicated uh, than most I'm of us, Perhaps I'm only speaking right? for me. <laughs> but, uh, but he is a bit more complicated than the average bear. Yes, he is. Yes, he absolutely is. And, and uh, I mean, I'm Look, I've walked away from the process. There are particular ways in which I liked him. There are particular ways in which I was impressed by the nature of his politics and the way he applied them. And particularly, uh, um, my view, uh, that, he, that he was an instinctive leader um, and was uh, and is a very substantial figure in Australian political history. Um, but, and I, I knew him, I think I felt I knew him to a degree, and that was on the basis of the best part of 40 years of constant contact with him. But how well do I know him now as opposed to how well I knew him before I started this process? I'd say maybe 20%. Mm. Uh, and how much of, of, the, of all of Paul Keating is that? I'd say maybe, I don't know, 60%. But, but I've, I, I have got some thoughts of my own that explain some of the inconsistencies and some of the actions. Yeah, so I wanted to look at some of those inconsistencies because over and over again in the book we get to his enormous self-belief um, mm. which often came across as arrogance and he doesn't shy away from that. Early on in your book he says that if a leader doesn't have that inner belief, if they don't believe that the job should be theirs then they can't do the big things. A bit later, though, he says he possesses a core humility, whereas Bob Hawke was a pathological narcissist. <laughs> and he seems to argue that the difference between his 
inner belief and pathological narcissism is that he had to use his intellect to earn the leadership, whereas Hawke just thought it, he was owed it, even though Keating says, I think it's the next page after he talks about his inner humility, he says uh, that Bob Hawke, in brutal intellectual terms, Bob could have only got a PhD in ordinariness. <laughs> is that just an arrogant person justifying his arrogance? No, it's, no, it's more complicated. Or is, it, no. is, it, is there a real distinction that he's making there? Well, the first thing I want to say, Lenore, is thank you very much for reading the book. <laughs> The, the, the person, the only other person I know in this country who's come closer or has come close to what you've done was my brother who's lived in America for 60 years and only has thin strands of knowledge about Australian politics but out of sheer love for me he arrived here by chance uh, just as I got my hands on the first copy of the book. He read three quarters of the book in three days um, but, but every other interview I've done people have read the introduction They've read little snippets here or there, and I, under, I understand it because the publishers have been very careful about getting it out. Um, having said all of that, uh, he, um, I, I don't see a contradiction in uh, when he talked about being a humble person, what he then explained, and what he calls earned confidence. I think that, uh, I mean, I'll, uh, I'll give him a tick for this, the earned confidence. What he's really saying there is that he spent a lifetime learning. I think he was a great observer. I think he was driven, driven substantially by curiosity. I think he, he uh, genu had a genuine imagination and has. Uh, I think he's still a curious person today. Uh, if you want to compare him to Hawke in that regard, um, you know, Hawke clearly had an intellect, a real intellect. Hawke really brought great strengths uh, to the successes of those years, and it wasn't just the delivery of the political capital that Paul Keating talks about. Um, and this is, uh, it's a little bit disconcerting for me that we've got a member of the, of the cabinet of those years sitting in the very front row <laughs> of this room, uh, taking mental notes. But, um, but uh, I can remember, being struck very early on in the history of that government, people who were traditional enemies of Bob Hawkes and who sat around the cabinet table with him who said, you know, this guy is a great chairman of this cabinet. It was a very talented cabinet, uh, one of the most talented, I'm sure, pound for pound uh, in our history. And there are all sorts of reasons for that. Now, Bob Hawke didn't have much to do with, with the selection of that cabinet. He inherited it from Bill Hayden and actually also from Gough Whitlam, who had opened up the Labor Party to that influx of talent. And I guess this guy, John Kerrin, would be one of them. Uh, but having inherited it, Hawke was a very good chairman of that cabinet. And he brought a lot of things, including, uh, um, it sounds, a um, propensity for hard work. He spent long hours each day absorbing stuff. He was across every brief, all of those things. Keating acknowledges some of that, but not all of it. Now, why is that? Um, some of it, I think, is probably a comment on the personality of Paul Keating and the competitiveness of him uh, uh, to do with his view of what he thought he brought to that cabinet table as opposed to others. I thought I was a little bit ungenerous to him. Not, not ungenerous, but I didn't do him any favours. The tyranny of television and the edit process, we, we recorded 16 hours 
for the four hours that went to air. And there were parts of the 12 hours that was cut out where he actually was acknowledging the contributions of some of his colleagues. And it wasn't deliberate on my part. It was just that those were less important in some ways than what we decided we had to keep in. Uh, and he's more generous in the book mm. than he appeared to be. In the, but nonetheless, there are a lot of eyes, you know. And, and yes, he is very uh, committed to cementing his place in history, and I think, frankly, he succeeded in that. Mm. So were there many signs of humility, many incidents? All right. Well, let me, let me talk. The one that he spelled out was when, uh, when in, in the context of me talking about ego and confidence, and he just slipped into the conversation that he was actually quite a humble person, pause, comma, prepared to, compared to Bob. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, humble, tell me how. And, and he immediately talked about the great musicians who inspired him and listening to some of the, some of the genius of these people and how he said it gave him perspective, you know, Compared to these people, you, meaning him, have missed out. You know, we're just down here on this little stage doing our stuff. These are the geniuses. Mm. So, so he's saying, uh, I know my place in the grand scheme of things. But then when you actually get down here, what he's saying also is, down here I'm pretty big. <laughs> and he did have one tiny moment of self-doubt which he cured with alternative medicine. Yeah. Uh, this was November of 1992, and uh, I'm sure many, if not most, of the people in this room would remember when Keating became Prime Minister, there was a very big deficit in the polls between the Houston opposition and the government. And he had not much more than 12 months to make that up. And first there was One Nation, which was the, which was the plan that was to be seen to be responding to and, and to some degree neutralising the Hewson fightback agenda. And uh, in practical terms, it was also designed to get the economy going again after the recession, brackets, we had to have. <laughs> and, uh, and, and Keating did wear that and probably to this day still wears that recession as his recession. So, very interesting passages in the book about the recession. Um, but through 1992, the polls were going like this. Keating, there was an initial surge uh, through the launch of One Nation and a few other things, and then it dropped back, and then there was another surge, and then it dropped back, and he'd get back up the mountain, and then he'd slide back down. And in November of 92, there were very few people in Canberra, either in the Labor Party or in the press gallery, and certainly in the Liberal Party, who believed that he could win. So, so he's starting to, he's getting close to the, to, the, to the home stretch and he realises he hasn't got much time left. And it occurs to him that there are a lot of voters out there who think that they can uh, get rid of him, have John Hewson, the new boy, but not have the GST because, of course, Labor would vote against the GST in the Senate with the Democrats. So Keating, there was only one person I think he consulted momentarily, 
as he's thinking about this, and it was Stephen Smith who then, he was his political advisor, he subsequently became defence minister, and Stephen said, oh, for God's sake, Paul, don't do that, it'd be a disaster. Uh, Paul walks into the parliament, Hewson or somebody else must have said something, he thought, bugger this, and he went for it. So he said, if uh, John Hewson and the Liberals win the next election, a Labor opposition will vote for the GST. And he was saying to the electorate, you can't have it both ways. If you want Hewson, you want to get rid of me, you got Hewson and you got the GST. So Labor was immediately in despair, you know, heads in hands, Liberals were celebrating. In fact, in fact, the parties began late that afternoon and were going into the night. And, and this is the interesting thing, for one brief moment, Paul Keating acknowledges a little flash of self-doubt. <laughs> and he thinks, uh, how am I gonna rectify this? How am I gonna get this back on track? So he, uh, Lynham on 7.30, Paul Lynham has asked for an interview, so he decides he's gonna do the interview. He's gotta collect himself, so he's gonna go back to the lodge and give himself some space, and then he thinks, and he said, I'll just tell you a little secret here, Kerry. He said, every Friday through those years, I used to have acupuncture. Uh, he said, I found, you know, Valium will calm you down, but it, but it dulls you. He said, acupuncture calms you down, but then you've got energy when you come out of it. So he said, I rang my acupuncturist, asked him to come to the lodge. He comes to the lodge, he sticks a few needles, and he said, I, he said, I went down like a sack of potatoes. <laughs> and when I woke 20 minutes later, he said, up I sprang, I went in there, he said, I could have knocked down the doors of the studio and all Lynham would have seen as I sat down opposite him, he said, would have been me grinning like a Cheshire cat. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, you know, I knocked, knocked every question out of the bloody pit. And when we did the conversation in the opera house last week, he went a little further, he said, I was like Zeus. <laughs> Thunderbolts everywhere. And he said, at the end of it, uh, Labor people were coming up to me and saying, Paul, you've just won us the election. And the Libs were going, oh, maybe this was not, you know, what we thought. So yeah. that was one rare moment of self-doubt. So, and acupuncture fixed it. Excellent. The yeah. other little hint of humility I liked was when he said, after he became Prime Minister, he took the little flag off the front of the Prime Ministerial Holden. Yeah. That was also a tiny... Yeah, what did he say? What did he say? It was like a, like... There was an unflattering reference to a pig's bottom, I think. That's right, yeah. Like um, sticking the flag up a pig's bum, I think was what he said. He said that to Bob. <laughs> when, when Bob was still Prime Minister, he says, why are you fluttering that bloody thing on the front of the car? So on his, about the self-confidence, he says several times in the interviews and in the book that he credits his self-confidence in a way to all the love that his mother and his grandmother gave him growing up. I'm interested why you think them, not his dad, and whether you think there was anything super unusual about his childhood that created that amount of self-belief in him. Well, I mean, it's interesting, and he's, he's not the first student, nor will he be the last, uh, who underachieved at school. And I'll bet you, I mean, in fact, he acknowledged it, that on his report card it said, you know, could do better, doesn't, doesn't achieve to his potential. Um, the mother and the father and the grandmother. His dad he describes as a sweet guy. His dad was labour to his bootstraps. 
He was a boilermaker, um, but Min, Paul's mum, in the background was saying, Matt, uh, you can't just hang about the railway workshops all your life, you know, we've got to get on. So, so he describes Matt as the sweet guy and Min as the killer. As the driving force. She She's was the... the driving force. And the grandmother, who died when Paul was 12, but who used to go on strike at the dinner table if Matt spoke sharply to Paul. You know, she'd refuse to eat. So, so she, had, she had grandson Paul on the pedestal and he talked about the love quotient. He talked about um, putting on the asbestos suit and, you know, cutting a swathe through the fire, uh, which he says uh, came from that, that love, the strength of the love uh, and the confidence that they vested in him, the mother and the grandmother. Uh, but then the dad, I, I think his contribution is not to be understated because he then went on with a couple of other tradesmen mates and they established an engineering works which became quite successful. It employed more than 100 people and when they sold it in the 70s, I think it was for something like $360,000. So in the 70s, 360 grand was not bad for, for a boilermaker and a couple of his mates. Mm. And they were mixing with people who, if they weren't at the time, became captains of industry, like Tristan Antico was one. And so the, 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 the kind of the, the ideas that his father had and that Paul picked up on, and I think explains a great deal about, about, the, um, uh, about his part in driving that reform agenda. And he said his old man used to get terribly frustrated by the way Australians would continually vote for Menzies election after election after election. And of course the split didn't hurt Menzies' ongoing success. Uh, and, and, and Matt Keating used to say, I don't understand because the Labor Party is the natural party for the majority of Australians who are workers. And he talked about a bridge between Labor and capital. And if you think about it, that's, that's exactly, that's exactly uh, what was reflected in that reform agenda. So all through this book, he's talking about consciously from really early age, from when he used to go and visit Jack Lang, learning to exercise power. He wasn't just looking to learn how to get there. No. He was looking to learn what to do with it when he got it, quite consciously right from the get-go. Yes. Did, I mean, do you think that's unusual? And did other people dealing with him over those years watch or know that that's what he was doing? Of course they did. Um, that's, why, that's why so many of them were attracted to him and went along for the ride uh, from the New South Wales right. Um, and yes, of course it was unusual. I mean, let's take this at face value, and why not? Uh, unusual, but this kid at 12, he's given a book by his father, uh, written by uh, an English correspondent, uh, I think, who was one of the first into Hitler's bunker, a guy named Hugh Trevor Roper. Uh, that makes an impression on him. Somewhere not too long after that, in the next three years, Churchill makes an impression on him and he talks about Churchill's great moral clarity and he says, if that's the business he was in, that's the business I want to be in. Yeah. Now, you might think, oh yeah, Paul, this is, this is your backstory that you put together some years later. But in those years, not only was he collecting uh, Labor newspapers going back almost to the turn of the century and studying the lists of uh, 
trade union officials who were in this branch and that branch and this federal electoral council and that state electoral council uh, and, and kind of memorising this stuff, a sort of rain man of Labor politics. Um, but he was collecting Strand magazines. I don't know what the Strand magazine was, but, but it was an English magazine in which Churchill, at one point through the 30s, had a regular column. So it rings true to me that Churchill did have an influence on him. And then Roosevelt subsequently had an interest. So, and Roosevelt uh, was the one he was impressed with the most. Well, he says uh, that he regards Roosevelt as probably the great figure of history. And that's a huge statement, but Paul's not afraid of big statements. <laughs> True. So the great, the, the great moral, having moral clarity, I think, really was evident in his response to Mabo, which came out of the blue at a point when he really didn't need anything else on his agenda. Yeah. Was a really big political risk for him. Yeah took a bunch of his attention at a time when he had a whole lot of other things on his plate. Mm. It, was, that a moral, was that a moral response, do you think? Is that why he put so much energy into well, that issue? Uh, if, there's, if there's a question mark I've got, and, and, and I, I'd put it to him, my own curiosity about this was uh, where did his interest in Aboriginal affairs come from? Because uh, through my memory of those years leading up to when he became Prime Minister. I didn't remember him spending too much time uh, on platforms at Labor conferences or wherever talking about his passion for Aboriginal injustice. Um, so he tells the story in the book about how affected he was by the film Jetta when he saw it at the age of about 11 or 12. He even remembers, of course, the name of the cinema in Bankstown. Um, and, and, and being taken by his father uh, to boxing matches at the Sydney Stadium, the Sands Brothers, uh, a family of Indigenous boxers, one of whom, Dave Sands, I, if he did, wasn't world champion, he was certainly regarded as, a, as one of the great boxers this country's ever produced. And that told me tooth, and he, and he talked about seeing Aboriginal boxers having the crap belt out of them uh, around the carnivals uh, at various shows in the Jimmy Sharman tents for, as he said, tuppence halfpenny. And I'm prepared to take that on face value too. Uh, but, and he said that uh, when there was a moment in the time of their government that it would have been possible for the Hawke government to embrace a national land rights agenda, and my, my in the back of my head, I think that first pre presented in 84, but at the Labor conference in 86, uh, Paul Keating says, that, and it was introduced uh, to go into Labor's platform that they, there should be a commitment to a national agenda of land rights. And uh, there was a very strong lobby from the right. I think Graham Richardson was a part of it. Uh, there was a strong push from Western Australia. And Paul Keating says that he said to Bob Hawke, Bob, if you and I back this, we will get it through. And Hawke went the other way. So he says that in the back of his mind, he felt that at some point, if he became Prime Minister, it would come back on the agenda, and then there was Mabo. And it did, yeah. And he did not have to embrace Mabo. I think, I think it's true uh, what he says, that he could have left it to be sorted out through the legal mm. system, mm. and it would have been a giant mess and there probably never would have been 
uh, a national path uh, to... And he also fought to make sure that the bit about pastoral leases wasn't clarified in the legislation so that could be sorted through the courts and then WIC happened and that actually opened another hole. Yeah. And, and there was that, um, uh, that amount of money that was set aside mm. so that uh, Aboriginal communities could actually buy pastoral yeah. leases. So you write quite but, a bit... But sorry, just before you go on, uh, Lenore, the, the, the thing that really sticks out to me about that whole thing uh, was that, and, and it's, you know, around the same time as he's about to take the great leap and say, I'm not going to vote, or a Labor opposition mm. won't vote for a GST. In, in December uh, of 92, with the election still in the balance and still with almost no one believing Labor could win, he goes out knowing that there is not a single vote in it for Labor and quite possibly that there are votes at risk and he delivers the Mabo speech. Mm. Yeah. And that was, that, was, that was drawing the line and saying, we are going to take this serious, seriously, we are going to make it happen. You talk quite a lot about foreign relations and we haven't got lots of time and we know his sort of key achievements. The thing that I hadn't quite got before I read the book was he had a pretty frank and fearless way of interacting with foreign leaders, like talking dirty with Bill Clinton and um, and talking so robustly with Suharto that he had to take a toilet break. Can you tell us about his approach? That is, Suharto had to take yeah, the yeah, toilet yeah. break, yeah. Um, and John, I suspect it wasn't all that different to the style he employed in the cabinet room. There might have been a, <laughs> there might have been a few less expletives, but uh, but <laughs> uh, and and I think it probably well. It was certainly effective to the extent that he really did get APEC up as a leader's forum. Uh, and this is one instance where I don't think there's much... It was a way of interaction, right? Like, it's not... Oh, with, like with Li Ping, where he yeah. says... Where he's Li Ping saying that we can't come into this because, of course, with China, there was the slight um, complexity that they, that they didn't recognise Hong Kong, that... Um, they didn't uh, recognise Taiwan, and Taiwan and Hong Kong already had a seat at the ministerial APEC group. Uh, so Li Peng saying, we're not going to have a bar of this, and Keating saying, you'll be in this. You will be in this. You can't not be in this. What, America's going to be there, Japan's going to be there, and you're not? And Li Peng's wife says, my husband has just had a heart attack. You'll have to speak more gently to him. <laughs> yeah. But he goes, he goes to the Japanese Prime Minister, he goes to Suharto, Suharto says, if the Japanese will come on board, um, I'll be in it. He goes to the Japanese, they say, if you can get Suharto, we'll come. You know, meanwhile, George Bush disappears out the back door in America and Bill Clinton arrives and he's got to start all over again. Um, and then at the first uh, APEC, there's Keating like Zelig, you know, the Woody Allen character mm. who was this mysterious figure right through history. There in the background is Paul Keating as, uh, as the president of China and the president of America uh, having this kind of the handshake you have when you don't want to have a handshake where they're like that, mm. looking at the camera. <laughs> and by the, next, by the next APEC meeting a year later in Bogor in Indonesia, they're doing karaoke together, <laughs> which Keating claims is his initiative. <laughs> And, you know, I, I'm inclined to believe it. He gives a description. I'm sorry, just very quickly, Lenore. He gives a description of the Bogor meeting where all of these heads of government are sitting around the big table with their various advisers, and what's on the table 
is the first step towards free trade in the region. And, uh, and it's, it's Suharto as the host has presented this in his name, but Paul Keating and his advisers have essentially written the draft and given it to Suharto. And, and as it's being debated around the table and, it's and the debate is moving beyond what some of the delegates have been, some of the leaders have been prepared for, there's Paul Keating whipping from group to group saying, no, that won't quite work, why don't we do it this way? And I, I just suddenly had this image. That's exactly what he used to do in ALP conferences. Mm. And I said to him, well, your training at ALP conferences must have come in handy. And he went, yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly what it was. And he said, you know what? He said, our cabinet process was so disciplined and so sophisticated, we actually had, on the, had the wood on all these other guys. And I'm inclined to believe that to a degree too. I mean, it really was a remarkable period in Australian politics. So there's also this big theme about national symbols and, and yeah. national identity and all that. We know about the Republic and the flag, um, but there's also this very strong view he has about Gallipoli yeah. and Kokoda. Yeah. Can you talk about well, that? Um, it drove him nuts, and I don't think he's the only person in Australia who would say this, it drove him nuts, and they wouldn't all be of Irish background. <laughs> but it, it drove him nuts that Gallipoli was somehow elevated uh, out of a defeat, out of a defeat uh, from the architecture of British madness. Um, uh, th was this elevation to a kind of national mythology where somehow that was the birth of a nation? And as Keating said, it, what was federation? Mm. You know, what was all that led up to federation? What was the history from uh, through indigenous Australia and then, and then Europeans arriving and the whole process that evolved through um, convict settlement uh, all the way through to the First World War and Gallipoli? A war arguably, arguably, that we had no place in. So I'm actually, you might have guessed this, but I actually, I'm going, hmm. Fair enough. As he's saying, here was Kokoda. It became the turning point in the war in the Pacific. And Australians were in the front line of that war. This was a real and substantial threat to Australia and I wanted an acknowledgement of that. And what intrigued me was how much thought he had given to that moment where he suddenly decided he was going to kiss the earth at the monument uh, at Kokoda. And I said, had you planned it? And he said, no, that was very much in the moment. And I've talked to a couple of staff who said they had absolutely no inkling he was going to do it. So I've only asked that question because I couldn't agree with him more. But there were many points in the book where I kind of went, really? You know, I wondered about... Are you talking about, about me or him? No, no, him. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you were asking all the right questions. It was his answers I sort of went, really? So on leadership, there were two points. The night he gave the Placido Domingo speech, I think you and I were both there, yep. he says yep. he really didn't think, he didn't understand that it would set the leadership thing off. I, I can't understand how he could possibly not have known that it would set, even yeah. having you know, been bereaved, even yeah. suffering bereavement, I don't understand how you wouldn't know, being as clever as he is, that that was going to have that impact. Well, there was one line, there was one line which I think... Uh, allows you to say that more than any other, and that was the line about 
One of his classic throwaway lines about tripping over television cables in mm. shopping centres. Well, and there that was one. also, we've never had a great leader. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was talking... I mean, he this was is, talking This is where it's hard for me, Lenore, because I'm not here and I haven't written a book as an apologist no. for Paul Keating or as a promoter. Um, but what I've, what I've tried to do throughout is to, is to take his words at face value, really think them through and, and then go back and quiz him on them. Um, what you and I would both remember about that night, what I certainly remember about that night, I think he was genuinely upset by the death yep. of Christians. Absolutely, Absolutely no doubt about that. I think that, uh, I think that that was the driving emotional force behind what he said. I thought it was riveting and, and it was interesting. It was, I, I think, initially we were all there, you know, what's he going to say? Uh, we're all a bit intrigued by this guy and, and, and he starts talking and we're thinking, right, right, and then suddenly it, it's dawning. There was a holy shit moment. Yes, that's right. And, and, and although, although I think we all walked out of that room convinced that he was having a big shot at Bob Hawke, uh, I think that I, I felt at the time, and I certainly feel now, that there was a lot more to what he was saying yeah. mm -hmm. and what was driving it than Bob Hawke. So what about when he's talking about the time immediately before the second and ultimately successful yeah. challenge of Bob Hawke? You're a bit sceptical about the fact that he reckoned he was going to walk out of the parliament? So, so he's saying, A, he had no idea and it, none of his supporters were backgrounding the media at all, and B... No, he didn't say that. He's, no, he didn't say that. Uh, no, um, he said that he said that he was not. And he didn't and, know that. And he that said, his... well, he actually he sort of pointed the finger towards some of his mates in the centre left, rather funnily enough, rather than his mates in the right. He was saying that, um, and I've got an idea of who he was talking about. But he, he was, he look, I think he was probably half and half. But then he said uh, he was saying, and he was about to leave, and he would have resigned. Yeah. yeah. He said, well, in the end. Um, you're either going to believe it or you're not, uh, because nobody else was inside his head at the time. Uh, my immediate reaction when he said, this, this is a situation where, so the first challenge has failed, um, he's got, what, a little bit more than a third of the vote, mm. and, uh, and he says, that was my one shot in the locker and no one believed him, and, uh, and the way his office was set up, uh, I mean, obviously there was a campaign that continued to go on, um, but come Christmas, what he was saying, and there was the piggery in the middle of that, and he, and he said, and it made no sense otherwise, that this was the first step down the road out the door and into the, rest, into the world as a private citizen, and he was looking to his future, and he was interested in this business, etc., etc. of all the businesses in the world that Paul Keating might have chosen. <laughs> that one surprised us all, I think. But nonetheless, you know, of course, being Paul Keating, he wasn't just buying an interest in a piggery or in any other business. A minute later, he was talking about co-opting the great, you know, the great pig farmers of the world and pig process, pork processors of the world, the Danes. You know, I think he was al already planning uh, a world takeover in pork. <laughs> but uh, so there was that going on. You know, I mean, it really isn't cut and dried. Mm -hmm. And then so... So what he's saying is that when Hawke recalls the Parliament um, uh, for a vote on a bill to do with adver political advertising, and he says, this was his big mistake, in my head I was gone, I really didn't think I was going to, I had already decided if there was no change by the end of the year, that was it, 
In my head, I was going to announce my resignation in January. I'd already, be, I'd already cleared most of my office, and so we're back for this thing, and Leo McLean, a couple of his right-wing pals from New South Wales, walked through the door of his office, and Leo says, Paul, you're really going? And Keating says, well, yes, I am. And they say, but you can't. And he says, from that came the challenge the next day. So you either believe it or you don't, because there's no, there's no, no way to corroborate it or otherwise. Yeah. On media policy, Labor's changes to the media laws in 1986 meant that News Limited bought the Herald and Weekly Times and then sat on about 70% of the nation's print media yep. for the next three decades. They weakened Fairfax, set in train what you could call a series of unfortunate events. And he tells you basically that all that was completely justified because he thought the Herald and Weekly Times and Fairfax had been hostile to Labor. I mean, that sounds like a justified justification after the fact to me. He can't possibly, with his policy mind, he can't possibly think that that was a good outcome public policy-wise, can There's he? There's a slight flaw in your argument, Lenore. What's that? In 1976, he moved a private member's bill to introduce precisely that policy, which was, and it was based on, on America's laws, which were the a separation of powers between print and television. But would he have wanted it, does he, would he really have thought that that was a good outcome from the policy? Well, in his terms, it worked in America, it, it let, but you see, you've got to be careful making a, a, a comparison between a country of what would have mm. then been maybe 18 or 17 million people in Australia and a massive continent and a, a country like America with about 300 million people. Uh, but nonetheless, um, that is one thing that actually lends weight to what he says, that he was thinking about this policy in 1976 to the extent he actually moved a private member's bill. And that was the essence of, of what he put in when he was co-opted as part of a small committee to break the deadlock between Bob Hawke as Prime Minister and Michael Duffy as Communications Minister. And, it, and it, was, it was really originally an argument about television ownership. And Keating, when he was... Uh, it, the odds are that he probably worked his own way into that little group. And, and he changed the debate to include print. I agree with you absolutely that it is that for any one person uh, to have essentially 70% concentration of print ownership in the country is deeply unhealthy for a country the size of Australia. In the same way, uh, you know, any media proprietor who has very significant control of media outlets in the context of the size of the country is almost anti-democratic. It certainly doesn't help democracy, and I think Rupert Murdoch has done his best to prove that to us. Uh, but, but you see, Mur Keating in the book will actually take you through how, even if we think this is hardly diverse ownership, he will tell you it, it is a damn sight more diverse than it was when it was the Herald and Weekly Times because what the Herald and Weekly Times held was bigger than what R Rupert Murdoch holds now. But he also constantly makes the argument in terms of how the different proprietors treated Labor. Yes. Oh, look, uh, and, and it's, it's why I was so keen, actually, you know, in the back of my mind as I'm debating whether I'll actually go ahead and do the book or not because I was pretty much over the subject by the time I'd finished the series. Uh, was the fact that I had not been able to include media in the television series. I, I sort of threw a couple of desultory questions to him 
when I was doing the television series knowing that they'd never make it in because we just didn't have the time, but just out of sheer curiosity. And when he started sort of opening up about some of this mm. stuff, I really wanted to see that as being on the record. And, and in some ways it confirms uh, things that have already been written, uh, Colleen Ryan and others. Um, and, and the questions are there, you know, were you making these policies because you thought it was good for the country or were you making these policies because as a Labor politician you hated these bastards because they were anti-Labor? A bit of both. Um, hmm. <laughs> but, I mean, he says, this is 1984, Hawke is Prime Minister, it's an election. It was the election that went forever, I'm sure it's indelibly imprinted on John's mind. John Kieran's mind and every other Labor politician who had to traipse around the country, eight and a half weeks or something, the campaign. And uh, Peacock performed a damn sight better than anybody, including Bob Hawke, thought he would do. Uh, but there was an asset, there was, they, Labor wanted to introduce an assets test on the pension. And, uh, and there was, a, one of the big reasons that the Liberals did so well in that election was because of that assets test. The way Keating saw it, the Herald and Weekly Times campaigned vociferously, vociferously against the assets test. So it wasn't just editorialising, it was, it was a thrust in the reporting of the campaign. He saw that uh, as just a straight-out attempt to defeat a Labor government with biased journalism. So, after the election, a guy named John Darcy, who was the head of the Herald and Weekly Times, comes up to him in the ANSET lounge in Melbourne and introduces himself, John Darcy, Herald and Weekly Times. Uh, Mr Keating, uh, you and I need to get together to sort out where we go from here. And Keating says, well, there's nothing to sort out. You'll just go. <laughs> okay. And, and funnily enough, that's what happened. This is my last question and then we might open for qu to questions from the floor. Do you see any similarities between Keating's leadership style, his approach to leadership, and Malcolm Turnbull? Uh, uh, no, I see some similarities between Paul Keating and Gough Whitlam, uh, and some stark differences, but some similarities. Uh, the risk-taking in both, I mean, the kind of crash or crash through with Gough. I, I think uh, uh, it continues to frustrate me this sort of broad view that the Whitlam government was, a, was a, an endless chaos from beginning to end. Uh, and frankly, that's just a nonsense. Uh, there were some serious flaws in that government and there were some disasters. And at times it was like a political carnival. Uh, there are lots of reasons for that. Not least of which was that they were in opposition for 23 years. Um, and, and there was a lot of impatience in Whitlam, but so much of that program was hugely important for this country and has survived the test of time. It might have been whittled here or there, but it, was, it really was the foundation. So much of those three years became the foundation for what followed. And although Hawke and Keating, to a degree, uh, were at pains to distance themselves somewhat, I mean, I, th I, think, I think there was an obsession in Labor ranks in the Hawke years, Hawke and Keating years, to prove that they were great economic managers compared to Gough. Um, but to come to Malcolm Turnbull, uh, I think Paul Keating was undoubtedly a very bright guy. Malcolm Turnbull is undoubtedly a very bright guy. Um, I, think, uh, I think there's an impatience that they share. Um, 
does Paul, uh, do, does Malcolm Turnbull have the, the sweep of imagination that Paul Keating had? Does he have the driving curiosity that Keating have, had? Uh, does he have a better judgment than Paul Keating in terms of the risk taking? I think the pattern that emerges to me that is quite important in, in understanding the last couple of years of the Keating government is that it seems to me Keating became so immersed in the policy that he took his eye off the politics. He was at war with the press gallery in a kind of classic Keating style. He just decided that because the gallery had lost interest in him, They're all you know, terrible. F you. Mm. Um, and uh, yes, he knocked off Houston, and yes, he knocked off Downer, and could he possibly knock off three Liberal leaders in three years? And a part of him saying, there's no way I'm going to win the next election. He wouldn't have said it to anyone but himself. And he's thinking, these policy areas I want to get through. So there are reasons as to why there was less focus on the politics and, and more on the policy, but I've got no doubt that that was a significant factor, quite apart from all the others, as to why he lost that election. Um, I think uh, I'm really fascinated watching the process right now. I think that uh, a big part of, and I don't want to, I don't want to take anything away from Malcolm Turnbull right now because uh, he's done some impressive things. Paul Keating is right when he says that the bar is now so low. Uh, <laughs> and, and truly, uh, I think seeing the end of Tony Abbott was like lancing a national boil. <laughs> and and political political debate had had reached such a nadir um, that I, I really felt that the nation breathed a collective sigh of relief when Malcolm Turnbull came in. So so Keating's right to that degree, but but uh, and and. Malcolm Turnbull will look back on this period, I suspect, assuming he wins the next election, which he will, if Labor doesn't sort itself out, and I can't see how they're going to, um, that he will look back on this time as a rosy moment when things were absolutely sweet because it's only going to get tougher. Do you agree? I do. Yeah, so that's when the real test well, of his I leadership will be. The, the jury is out. We haven't seen his policy ideas yet or how much he can implement No, them. but, but you, but you has, give I him some he, room. I you? think he's got the same, not the same, but I think he's got a similar um, feel for power. Yep. Well, he's certainly interested in it. <laughs> I think we want questions But he's not alone. He's now. not alone. I think you might need dark glasses. Oh, that's better. Uh, really, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. And I'm not going to be like the National Press Club journos and ask two questions in one go at the microphone. Sorry, uh, we might, might try um, putting the mic a little closer. Yeah, how's that? That's better. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. Multiple questions to think of asking, but perhaps this one. Tonight, the audience almost has nobody under the age of 30. How do you think Paul Keating cuts through to that age? <laughs> right. Um, well, I spotted a few. 
And I must say, it's a delight uh, whenever you see young people turning up to political events or events discussing politics. And at the Opera House, actually, there were quite a few. And again, in Melbourne, two and a half thousand people at both those venues, quite a few young people. Uh, and they are, you know, they struggle. They struggle to understand what would Keating say to them? What Keating says uh, about the Labor Party uh, is that he thinks it's still fundamentally true to Labor principles, uh, but that they have lost a part of their base that they should never have lost and that they haven't garnered a base that they should have. And he says, in classic Keating style, the tradie with the dog and the ute and the toolbox uh, of those days, of his era, might now be hiring, might now have 12 or 13 people on the payroll, uh, and Labor's lost that vote, and they shouldn't have. And if they've lost his vote, they've probably lost at least some of the votes of the tradies who work for him. And he says also that there are many people in the professional classes who would be and should be Labor voters, and they're lost, a lot of them, to Labor. Uh, and what he's acknowledging, I think, is that the kind of the old divisions, the old political divisions, uh, no longer apply with anything of the clarity as they once did. Uh, I mean, I, I remember very clearly uh, in the Hawke-Keating years when uh, uh, the workforce membership of trade union, it was something like 60, it reached something like 64 or 65% of the workforce. I read yesterday it's now down to 14%. And without the public sector, it would be about 3%. Now, you know, that is a, an indictment. That is an indictment. Uh, I, and even allowing for the massive changes in the nature of the workforce and the massive technology, you know, the impact of technology and all the rest of it, that to me is an indictment on the trade union leaders and it's an indictment on the Labor Party. So Keating's acknowledging that. What would he be saying to young people? What young people might take from him uh, would be ask the questions, seek the answers, allow your curiosity full reign, garner your imagination, and run down the road. I mean, what he says is, and he got this from Lang, and when I say to him, you know, what, what looking back, you know, what is the big lesson you learnt? And he said, uh, time. You, you have not got the time. Don't waste it. Go with it. And, and uh, what you can't take from Keating, whatever legitimate criticisms can be laid at his door, what you cannot take from Keating is his passion. And yes, passion can be misguided. But young people with, cash, with passion and curiosity and imagination are the future of the world. regard yourself similar to Keating with a passion and stuff like that in the work that you've done? I've got my own passions, uh, Dan, 
um, horse racing. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it, at some point along the way, it actually occurred to me that he and I had kind of lived parallel lives because um, he's, uh, he's just short of two years older than me. We were both born into Irish Catholic working class families. Uh, his father was Labor, my father was Labor. Uh, his, because he was in New South Wales as much as anything, uh, his father stayed with Labor in the split. My father went DLP because the Catholic Church in both Queensland and Victoria uh, was in the, in the politics up to its armpits, whereas in New South Wales, uh, was it Gilroy? I don't know, but whoever was uh, the Archbishop of Sydney at the time had the very good sense uh, and some, some idea of the separation of church and state and was not so heavily involved in the split as Santa Maria and the church were in Victoria and in Queensland. And so that was a kind of aberration of where you were at the time. And this is a complete aside, but I, I watched my father over decades, hoping that he wouldn't come to a day where he decided to vote Labor again and actually stop and say to himself, my God, all those wasted years. And guess when he voted Labor again? When Paul Keating became Prime Minister. <laughs> uh, so there were kind of parallels. We both went to brother's schools I went on somewhat in my education, but neither of us went to university. Uh, he went into politics, I reported politics. Um, Dan, my, you know, I've got passions, yes I have, and I'm pleased I have. Uh, and sometimes, but you know, I did learn a discipline somewhere along the way, one that Dan and I went to school together. Uh, I learned disciplines that I didn't display at school. Um, and one of them was to understand that I had to have my own separation between my own beliefs and my own views and reporting fairly. And that's what I sought to do. Uh, but I followed politics uh, over a very long period of time and watched Keating progress. Uh, I was a press secretary to Gough Whitlam and then to Lionel Bowen, as I said, I think earlier. Uh, and I saw Paul Keating in and out of those offices, this zappy young guy in the suits and the swagger. Uh, and it was clear he was going places, very clear. Um, and I occasionally went to dinner when I was with Bowen, and Bowen was one of his mentors. Here's an interesting thing about Keating for those who thought he wasn't a true Labor man. If you look at his mentors carefully, um, Lang, Lang was, a, um, was a divisive figure in the Labor Party of his day, deeply divisive figure. But Labor, but Lang introduced, I mean Lang, Lang I think stood for Labor in the Depression era, uh, Rex Connor. Rex Connor, interesting fella, true Labor man. Uh, Lionel Bowen, another mentor of Paul Keating's. Lionel Bowen's mother raised Bowen in the slums of Redfern in the Depression as a cleaner day and night. Lionel became a lawyer, um, but true Labor man. So, and Clyde Cameron was another of, of those people that Keating had an ear for. And I used to occasionally go to a dinner at a restaurant here called the 19th Hole. I don't know whether it still exists, but it was a, was it Narrabunda or somewhere there's a golf course? Yeah. And, uh, and I'd be fascinated watching these guys trading stories. And that was where I first heard him quoting Lang about self-interest in a, you know, politics, as a, think of politics as a horse race, and always back the horse called self-interest. That was, that was pure Lang. 
So um, I, I, had a, I, I had some sense of Keating, and I had, I say in the forward, that I was exposed uh, to both friends and foes. I heard everything that there was to be said about Keating, from those who liked him or loved him or supported him, and to those who couldn't bear him. <laughs> Just a quick uh, question. Um, you've talked about mentors on the other side, uh, people who are influencing um, uh, uh, Keating in terms of working, and I'm thinking of Don Watson in particular. Um, my wife here always claims credit uh, for some lines she wrote for Brian Burke, that it was always Labor policy to win the America's Cup. And... Um, uh, you know, the Watson-Keating relationship is fairly interesting. He, he also wrote a substantial tome like you have done. So I was but that was all his own work. <laughs> Indeed. But I was interested in, in some of those uh, key personalities, are not politicians, who yeah. influenced um, Keating and what he said. And Marbo sort of sticks in my mind as one of those key uh, issues where perhaps um, others were playing part of what Keating oh, had yeah. to say. And uh, in the same way that he um, runs through a number of people around his cabinet table and acknowledges their significant roles, uh, he also does the same with people in his office. He described Don Russell, the other Don, as his alter ego. He said, you, well, he didn't use the term alter ego, but he said, he said, you could put, the, put us in separate rooms, ask us the same questions, and we'd give precisely the same answer. I'm not sure that that necessarily made Don Russell his best advisor. <laughs> but, um, and so it was, and this is another one of those contradictions, Lenore, because at a certain point, Watson, who was the bleeding heart, Russell was the rationalist, so Russell's gone over to Washington as the ambassador, leaving bleeding hearts and maybe a few rationalists left in the office. But this is part of the criticism of Keating and why he lost in 96, that where there was this sort of, this um, toing and froing between the rationalists and the bleeding hearts and the endless arguments from both sides and what emerged was one side would win here, one would win there and sometimes you'd get something in the middle. But even Don Watson came to the view that they, uh, that they were losing the battle, that, um, that they actually needed the rationalists to come back and inject uh, some of what they regarded as the magic of Russell and of that partnership. So Russell comes back from Washington to try and help turn it around. And uh, according to, I think it was Paul Kelly in March of Patriots, or maybe it was Don, uh, said um, um, that Russell came back and said to Keating, um, you, you've, you've forgotten the balance of things, you've lost touch on the economic stuff, um, you're not telling the people the good things about what's going on in the economy as a result of Labor and of your policies. You're too caught up in the Republic and Mabo and Asia. And I said to Keating, did he really say those things to you? And he said, some of them. <laughs> but um, uh, of Watson, you know, there's the whole thing about Watson's book and Keating launches it and then subsequently decides that he doesn't like it or that he felt that there was a betrayal in the book. 
And so he doesn't speak to Watson again. And when somebody said, either Don, I think it might have even been Don Watson himself, who said, but you launched my book. And Keating said, yeah, but I hadn't read it. I had the great opportunity of actually working for Paul. Um, I worked with three of his advisors, social policy, um, political, and environmental and sports um, through the early 90s. So it was from 93 to 96. And I suppose, obviously listening to you, Kerry, and seeing your interviews, as I said, on television, obviously looking forward to reading your book. Um, Can you put the microphone oh, sorry. a little bit closer? Yeah. Um, like karaoke, don't do karaoke. Yeah. <laughs> obviously, it was a fantastic opportunity to work with one of our, the greatest leaders. Obviously, I think one of the greatest leaders of our country. You never knew what was going to happen every day. Um, we had a wonderful staff. But he was always surrounded by advisors that I felt that he wanted to be inspired by. He wasn't a leader that felt he needed to... He knew everything. He just surrounded himself by greats in every area of, the, of every industry and every part of policy. So all I wanted to say was he was, um, as I said, often obviously people would get that public persona that he obviously was arrogant. Um, but I remember one day I, it was that strange fashion moment where I decided to wear a, a suit. So I had sort of like a shirt and tie and shorter hair and he walked past me through the, um, the press room in the office and he sort of just glimpsed and saw me out the corner of his eye and he says, oh, g'day, mate, and then kept walking and then he just thought, hold on a minute, he came back and goes, oh, sorry, g'day, love. <laughs> and I just thought that was quintessentially Paul. He never really apologised for who he was, but it was always these lovely moments where he was, um, we went to the first APEC meeting in Tokyo. We were in, sorry, in um, Osaka in Japan, as you can appreciate, the first APEC meeting, this is a long time ago, and... But he always had a great, um, yes, just demeanour with all of his staff. It was never that feeling of, I'm the Prime Minister, I'm the most powerful person in the room. Um, he just was always very gracious and, you know, as I said, very loving and had a really, um, just a wonderful way of, of dealing with his office. So I think to have that opportunity to work with him firsthand was a great opportunity. So, as I said, I'm looking forward to reading... Um, your insights into who he was um, as our Prime Minister and who he was as our person. So, as, sorry, obviously who he was as our Prime Minister. Thank you. So, obviously, we've been talking about an extraordinary politician, an extraordinarily skilled politician. And I've got to admit, over recent years, sometimes when he'd come on the television and there was a political leader who could talk in sentences that he made up himself. I'd get this <laughs> deep nostalgia for those times. But I'm interested, just as a final question, do you think those skills are just inherent and transferable? Do you think, how do you think he'd go if he was in politics today? Well, he says, funnily enough, he said this to a German newspaper about five years ago, that if he had come to politics today, meaning at his time, um, he would be a better Prime Minister, and I asked him about that. And what he was talking about was that he would have um, a deeper knowledge of the world and how it worked, that in his time out of politics he'd, uh, he'd built his knowledge base uh, 
out in the world more. Uh, and so I said, well, then perhaps Lang wasn't right. Perhaps you should have gone out and experienced more of the world before you came into politics. And he said, no. <laughs> no, here's, and, and here is the conundrum. If you actually want to get to a point in the political system where you're going to make a difference, get the power and do things with it, he says in his terms, you've probably got to start young but, and not stop running. But that, that response is talking about his own inherent abilities yeah. and knowledge. It's not talking so much about how the system's changed yeah. around him. Yeah. I mean, what I'm asking is more how his skills, whether his skills would be as, uh, as effective in the oh, current nature of the debate. The whole night. Look, I, I, I still think, Lenore, that, uh, that a good leader will cut through. I mean, I think both parties are a bloody mess, frankly. Uh, and I think that, you know, the sort of political class that is being thrown up, and I'm about the 557th person with any knowledge of politics at all to say it. I mean, on the Labor side, they've had report after report going back to Rand mm. and Button and Hawke and others, it's where they've all thing. said pretty much the same thing. Um, too much union influence, uh, too many people uh, of the same type, uh, people coming into politics like it's just another career or just another profession. There is no sense of vocation about it. And, and I'm not kind of living in the past in this sense. I think all of those things are true. It's also um, uh, in tandem with a time in history like nothing humanity has ever experienced before. I mean, these are extraordinary times. They are times of immense change. And I've thought about this. The Industrial Revolution was the last big revolution that had an impact anything like what we're going through. We are just at the beginning of this. And nobody knows, and it doesn't matter how much uh, certitude a person brings to this, anybody who says to you, I know what's going to be happening in 10 years' time, is full of bullshit. <laughs> because the truth is, nobody knows. So and that is true of politics as well. But, but People of quality, Lenore, have to be attracted into it. And people of quality with some experience of life and something driving them beyond making a career. I, I, I absolutely agree with you. My question is... No, no, well, no, my, oh, my, no, sorry. my, que my question is, is going to... When we were reporting on Keating, yeah. you could have a national conversation about one topic that lasted a couple of weeks or months or six months. Now yeah. they are lucky to last half a day. Yeah. And I just wonder whether any leader can cut through sufficiently well, to sustain a conversation. We I, haven't had anyone who's tried in quite a long time, so oh, yeah. it's sort I of an open question. I believe a real question. leader can. I mean, a real leader will lead. And, uh, and a real leader of his or her time will lead in that time. So if this time is one where the air is filled with dribble, that's driven by 24-hour nothing uh, on news, um, and, and look, you know, I mean, diversity, not diversity, but, but um, uh, uh, the digital age is on us, and the digital age is having a huge impact on the nature of news gathering and the way it's delivered, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that we have to surrender depth uh, not for a moment. Well, I don't think we should, and I don't but think we that, are. But I think that is happening, and I'm very interested to see if we get a leader who tries to sustain an actual debate about an actual change that they believe in, whether 
how hard it is for them to do it. We haven't All seen right. anyone who's tried. All right. Well, uh, let me suggest we end on this. Malcolm Turnbull has a chance of doing yep. that. Let's see. Malcolm Turnbull has a chance. He's got the brains. He's got the ability. Um, he's not an extremist of any colour. Um, let's see what he can do. And and uh, I don't think he's quite got Keating's uh, grasp of the language. I mean, and I don't I don't mean that I don't mean that in terms of you know Keating's vocabulary was. He, Keating had more words. I think metaphor. Keating had different words and a different way of expressing them. And I'm starting to do this, so that's a problem. <laughs> and when, he do, when you do this at me, I know I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to go home and look at myself. I think we've, I think we've had a stop. Yeah? <laughs>